Good evening, 613. How you guys doing? That great, huh? <laughs> if you guys wouldn't mind, I'm going to tell a couple stories of some things, some fun things that I went through this week. Uh, and then we're going to hopefully use just some fun aspects of those uh, things, the, these stories, uh, to illustrate a principle in the parable of the sheep and the goats. Wednesday, we took student ministries, and so middle school, high school, a few college uh, students, we went down to Santa Cruz, spent the afternoon at Santa Cruz hanging out, doing the whole boardwalk thing, and then we loaded back up on buses, made a pit stop here at church, and then we went up to the Chabot Group campsite, and we just were camping out for the night, and it was great for the most part. Um, one, of our, one of our girl counselors forgot to bring a sleeping bag. Which if you're going camping, bring a sleeping bag because it's cold outside. Um, and so I found a high schooler who was actually prepared and brought an extra sleeping bag. And so it was like it was like 11.30 or 12, maybe a little bit later than that. I don't know. And so I walk over to the middle schoolers, which we placed them out, you know, out in the middle of nowhere because we wanted the middle schoolers to have their own space. And so I went over there. I gave Leah her sleeping bag. And then I thought, now's the chance. I am going to scare John and Josh, and Alana. Alana was the one on the keys. I'm, I'm going to get them. And so I decided that I'm going to start, I'm going to sort of creep through the trees, you know, the thick eucalyptus that they have there at Chabot, and I am going to scare these guys. And I, you can't scare somebody if you have a flashlight on, right? And so I turned off my flashlight. I pocketed it. I took two steps, two steps before I got hit straight in the forehead <laughs> with this giant branch like it was probably two or three inches around right into my forehead <laughs> I mean it just leveled me I was wearing a hat at the time it just smacked my I was wearing the hat backwards it smacked my head I fell down onto the ground I was just like I was looking over my shoulder to see if anybody you know woke up from that thought I just thought to myself what in the world was that just going around looking for my hat put it back on I was like I'm gonna go around the trees this time to go scare them and the moral of the story is, what, be careful where you're walking. <laughs> be careful where you're walking. I want to take that and say, be careful how you're living. Because a lot of times we think, I got this. I got this. But we're not aware that there's this giant branch headed right for our forehead. And it's totally going to level you because you're headed in the wrong direction. Be careful where you're walking. Be careful how you're living. Second story was earlier that night, uh, we got, we got the, the crowd together, and we, there's a little gazebo in the group campsite up in the, the Chabot campground. We got them, got them all settled in, and we said, it's scary story time. And one of our high school counselors, Brittany Emerson, uh, she, I, had, I had got her in on this, and so she had came prepared to tell, like, the, the truth about the Chabot woods, where there's the story of this... Uh, woman-like creature that has longer than average arms and shrunken eyes and just walks around and it was it was creepy but 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 most of the kids you know they, they were like all right all right all right you know I get it scary story time and so I had to I had to gather them in and I said I said hey we get it you're middle schoolers you're high schoolers like you guys aren't afraid of anything um but allow yourself to be afraid allow yourself to be afraid and so you just sort of worked up the crowd a little bit allow yourself to be afraid and then after I said that I let Brittany start telling her story and I snuck around back I climbed on top of the gazebo <laughs> and then 
Brittany's line was, and the scary part is the creature's still out there. And when I heard it, I jumped up on the gazebo and I went, <laughs> and everybody in, the, everybody in the gazebo, all they heard was stomp, stomp, stomp on the roof head of the ah! One of our high schoolers, one of our high schoolers was sitting down and uh, a, a leader told me about it later. They said he stood up and he knew he wanted to run, but there was nowhere to run because, you know, there's a hundred other people in this gazebo. So he just stands there. He's just freaking out. <laughs> Another one of our middle schoolers, or no, he's a freshman now. Another one of our freshmen, he's sitting down, and he doesn't even stand up to get out. He's just, oh, heck no, I'm out of here. He starts crawling over people to get out of there. We had a ton of fun. But another thing that we're going to talk about tonight is just allow yourself to be afraid. Uh, we're going to be going into the passage, and uh, the, brevity or so, well, the brevity will sort of end here at the front end. Um, as we get into this passage... I think we're all capable of brushing things off and saying, nah, I'm not going to deal with that. I, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm not sure that that's true or whatever. And we're, we're capable of not actually dealing with the passage. And so just as we get started here this evening, two things. One, be careful how you're living. Be careful how you're living. Because a lot of times we walk around cocky. I got this. You know, I'm going to go scare these kids. I, I, I know how I'm living. And we don't realize that we're heading into a dangerous situation. Watch how you're living. And then allow yourself to be scared. And go ahead and, if you have your Bible with me this evening, flip it open to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25. We're going to be going through a large section of Scripture, verses 31 through 46. Matthew 25, 31. I'm going to give a couple of notes on these beginning couple of verses, and then we'll read through the, the passage in its entirety. Matthew twenty five thirty one says this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. The passage starts out, Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 through 26 is in this, uh, this, these two chapters are called the Olivet Discourse. And how it began was the disciples are coming out of the temple and they, they, they point out the temple and they say, Jesus, look at these stones. Aren't they magnificent? Herod the Great was still in a renovation stage and he was renovating the temple to, to just a, a grand, grand building. And the disciples were impressed by it and said, Jesus, look at this. And then Jesus brings them off to a side, or Jesus addresses them and says, there's not going to be one stone left on another here in this temple. And so the disciples are going, what in the world? What are you talking about? And, and so they cross out of the temple, come onto the Mount of Olives, and his disciples come to him in, verse, in, in chapters 24, in the verses 1 and 2. And he says, and the disciples ask him, hey, when is this going to be? When is the destruction of the temple going to be? And, and then also, let me let me c come back. <clears throat> this is Matthew chapter 4, Matthew 24, verse 3. And Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, and his disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, 
when will this happen? So when is the destruction of the temple going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so the disciples ask him two questions. When are these, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And what are the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? And so for the rest of chapter 24 and chapter 25, Jesus is talking about this. He's addressing the disciples' questions. And partially what he talks about is the destruction of the temple. And a lot of what's spoken about in Matthew 24 is talking about the destruction of the temple. And then in there, he also mixes in uh, signs of the end of the age and when Jesus is going to return. So these chapters, there's a lot of confusing things about them because Jesus is talking about two things. He's talking both about the destruction of the temple, which happened in 70 AD. The Romans came in and said, we're done with the Jews constantly being a thorn in our flesh, and we are going to once and for all throw the, show them who's boss. And the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD. And so part of what Matthew chapter 24 is talking about has already happened. But then some of it is still to come, the sign of his coming and the end of the age. Here in chapter 25, Jesus is speaking specifically about the end of the age. And he begins it with when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of the angels with him. When we start talking about the signs of the end of the age, uh, I hope you get a little scared like I do about radio, radio hosts, you know, pinpointing the day and the hour and the specific times of this is when the end is going to happen and this is exactly what's going to happen and if you have any questions we have charts and we have pictures and this is exactly what this verse is talking about and that's what that verse is talking about and there's just this a lot of a lot of certainty that a lot of people will place in what's going to happen at the end of the age that makes me go I don't know if that's what the bible actually teaches But in the confusion, there is one thing that is absolutely certain. Jesus said, I'm coming back. I am coming back. And so just as we start off tonight, I want to give you guys a little bit of theology that Jesus is returning. Regardless of all all, all the the charts and the different um, eschatological perspectives that we might have, Jesus' return is certain. Here in Matthew chapter 24, he says it a couple of times. He says, for as the lightning comes from the east and is visible even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus is coming back. In Matthew 24, he says again, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Jesus is coming back. Jesus says, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, the people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus is coming back. In Matthew 24, Jesus starts telling stories. And the point of these stories is to keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. There's the parable of the ten virgins. And the point of the story was be ready for when Jesus comes back. Jesus follows the parable of the ten virgins with a parable of the talent where Jesus gives one person five talents, one person two talents, and one person one. And the moral of the story was, hey, while the master is away, be working because the master is coming back. In John chapter 14, 
Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is coming back. In Acts chapter 1, after Jesus is ascended into heaven, the angels appear into the clouds. It's sort of like this. And they say, hey, you men of Galilee, why are you looking up here? Just as Jesus ascended up into the clouds, he will come again to be with you. Acts chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus is coming back. And so just as we're starting this, this passage, I want to just, just lay this sure foundation that Jesus is coming back again. And that's not something that's, well, I mean, well, that's your view of eschatology. Here at Neighborhood Church, uh, we are very, I feel that we are, we, are, uh, we are good at saying, you know, these things are dogmatic, you know, we're going to believe these things, and you know, the things that aren't dogmatic in scriptures, we're going to give you a couple of perspectives, and we're going to let you choose, but one of the things that the Bible clearly, clearly teaches is that Jesus is coming again. When the Son of Man, it says in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory... And with all of the angels, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. And all of the nations will be gathered before him. It says all of the nations. It's meaning all peoples, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Everybody will be gathered before Jesus. And he will separate the people one from another. As a shepherd separates the, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right. And he will put the goats on the left. In Palestine, the, the sheep and goats will go out to the pasture together. But as they come back in, the shepherds will separate the sheep from the goats into their evening quarters. And they will, when they go to sleep, they will sleep separately. And so this would have been a familiar picture for Jesus' first audience. He says, there's going to be coming a time when all of the nations are going to be gathered together. And just as a shepherd would separate the sheep from the goats, so in the same way, Jesus is going to separate people into two groups. And here's what happens with the two groups. Then the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? Then the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. 
they will also they will they also will answer lord when did we when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you and he will reply i tell you the truth whatever you did not do for one of the least of these you did not do for me and they will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life As I read these stories, there's two things that terrify me. The first is, the first is less terrifying than the second. The first is this, is, is why the sheep get in. The first thing that sort of bothers me in this passage is why the sheep get in. Jesus says to those on his right in verse 34, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. He gives them an invitation. He said, you guys are invited. You guys are, uh, wait, you guys are on my left, not you guys. You guys are invited. You guys are blessed. I love, I love uh, that the word blessed just means happy. He says, you guys are invited. You guys are happy. I have an inheritance for you. I have a kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Come on in. That's not what bothers me, though. The bo- what bothers me is that first word in verse 35. He, he gives them an invitation to blessedness, to an inheritance, to a kingdom prepared for them. And then he says, for... Right? And so he's about to give them the reason. Hey, here's why you guys are getting in. Here's why you guys are invited. And here's, here's what we would be comfortable with, right? That the king will say to those on your right, come, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the foundation of the world. For by grace were you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is my gift, not of works, lest any of you should both boast. We'd be comfortable with that, wouldn't it, me? Where he said, okay, okay. Like, I'm in because by faith I've been saved. For by grace I've been saved through faith. And it's not on my own. It's a gift of Jesus, not of works, as any man should boast. I would be way comfortable if that's what Jesus said. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, you are invited in. You are getting in because for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. He says, you're welcome in, and here's the reason why. Because of what you did. Whoa, 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 whoa. It sounds a lot like salvation by works, doesn't it? <laughs> and and we would, we would be real easy to be like, whoa, let's, let's chuck this out of here. Except that Jesus is the one who said it. Right? You can't really take what he says and throws it out because he's the one that all of this is founded on. And so Jesus said, the reason that the ones on the right are coming in is because of what they have done for me. And I know that we're all capable of, all right, well, we'll, we'll figure this out. How, how, how are we going to piece this whole puzzle together? But let's not go there just yet. Let's deal with this tension. Let's, let's sit in what Jesus actually said and not, not run really quick to the other passions of the portions of the Bible that are going to resolve this for us. 
right? Because so quickly we're ready to resolve the fact that Jesus is going to be judging us by our works, right? And we're much more comfortable with, with the Jesus who deals with us by grace through faith. I just pray that prayer. I believe that. I've accepted. I've raised my hand in, in the service. You know, like I wrote it down in my Bible. I've believed. I have faith. I've accepted. I've prayed that prayer. I'm in. We're comfortable with that, aren't we? But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says to those on his right, the reason you are coming in is because what you have done. Because of your works. Are we known as the people who love our brothers? Like, if this is really what's going to happen at the end of the age, which side of, the, which side of Jesus are we going to be placed on? Is Jesus going to say to us, thank you because you gave me something to eat. You gave me something to drink. You gave me clothes to wear. You took care of me. You looked after me. You came to visit me while I was in prison. Will Jesus say to us, here's what you have done? Cheap grace is a, is, a, is a real danger, isn't it? I remember sitting outside of Sweet Tomatoes uh, back in high school. And I was with my friend who uh, was going to Christian high school with me, uh, going to Christian high school together with me. Uh, but he, he, wasn't really, he wasn't really buying the whole Christian thing. Um, and so I was trying to explain to him the gospel and trying to explain to him that the way to be justified with God is by placing our trust in him. And immediately he had some pushback from him. And he was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So you're telling me that if I just believe in Jesus, if I believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead and I accept him to be my savior, that that's enough? I said, yeah. And I said, and he said, well, what if I sin after that? I said, you know, the grace of God where sin does abound, grace does much more abound. And I was very heavy on on salvation is by grace through faith and it's not something that you've done because the bible makes a big deal out of that but here's what here's what my friend heard well i can just do whatever i want i can just do whatever i want right like i mean if, if grace is going to cover all of my sin then then i can just do whatever i want but then we come to passages like this and jesus is saying that i'm going to judge you by your works I think we make a mistake if we go one direction or the other too quickly. I think we can make a mistake if we just, if we just come over here and say salvation is by grace and grace alone. And, and as long as you believe, you're okay. Because the grace that saves is never alone, right? Because the, the faith that saves you is the same faith that transforms your life. You guys have hopes in some of your guys' minds, you guys are, you guys are going, read James, read James, because we're going to read James. In James chapter 2, here's what James really digs into this issue about faith and works, where he says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith 
by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was it not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he, was, when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Do you see that his faith and his actions were working together and that his faith was made complete by what he did? And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friends. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. James makes it very clear that faith without works is dead. And I, and I just want to rest there for a while and bring us back to that. Bring us back to what Jesus said. That those who were let into heaven, the characteristic of them are going to be that they gave. They gave food. They gave drink. They gave their clothes. They were visiting those. Uh, he was looking after those. He was visiting people in prison. And the question is, are we doing those things? It is true that we are justified by faith, but the faith that justifies is never just is never in a vacuum. That faith must transform us. And I'm glad we're living in the, that. I'm, I'm glad that I have friends in this church that it is transforming them. Where where. The grace that they've received isn't just living inside of them with no action, but it's a, it's a grace that they've received, and now it is changing their life, and they're living out what Jesus says to the sheep. Alana, who is on the keys right here, uh, is about to go off to Serve Seattle, a program that is connected with uh, a couple of a couple of organizations in Seattle, and she's going to spend nine months just not going to school, spending uh, her own money. She's raising money in order to go to Seattle because she wants, she wants to not only show, show that, you know, she's believed in Jesus, but that her belief in Jesus is actually changing the way that she lives. Uh, Paul, uh, Paul our, our worship pastor, had a concert for his uh, band on Friday. And instead of having just music, one of the things that Paul had was a woman from an organization who was providing for those who were caught in the sex trafficking and, and the sex trade here in our area in running an organization that is providing services uh, to boys and girls who are coming out of uh, being sex slaves. And he is partnering with this organization in order to do something because his faith isn't just faith alone. It's a faith that does something. Uh, I love being a part of a church that isn't just, well, I believe this, I believe it, but it's, it's also a faith that is put into action. We have a Cross Streets ministry, and Cross Streets uh, does a lot of things, but one of the things that we do is at back-to-school time, which is coming up, um, we gather tons and tons of backpacks and, and we contact people who are in need in our community and we invite them up to church and we just say hey we have gotten back to school supplies for you uh, coming up pretty soon we're going to have 600 people coming up to our church campus and just going for uh, and, and allowing us to provide them with valuable back to school stuff and here's the good news is that we need volunteers to staff it why why would we need volunteers to staff something like that because 
is not just about what we believe, it's that our beliefs change our actions. If you're interested in, in helping the, co the Cross Streets Back to School Community Connection, uh, you can find their application form at 3cross.es slash school. That's 3cross.es slash school. And you can be a part of just not only having faith, but having your faith be put into action. The first thing that bothers me is why the sheep get in. That it's, that it's based in this passage on works. And I want to be clear that I believe that we are saved by grace through faith. But when we are saved, our lives must be transformed. And a good, a good way of knowing whether or not we've believed in Jesus is whether or not we are caring for our brothers. The second thing that bothers me is this. In verse 41... Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then down in verse 46, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Eternal fire, eternal punishment, and this eternal fire and eternal punishment is contrasted with eternal life. So in the same way that we are expecting a kingdom that lasts forever and joy that knows no end, in the same way that eternal is meant in life, the Bible uses the same word for eternal life as it does for eternal fire and for eternal punishment. I am not comfortable at all dealing with this topic. Um, C.S. Lewis said, that if there was one doctrine that he could get rid of, it would be this doctrine of hell. And I agree with C.S. Lewis. Because there's just something about it that is uncomfortable. But it's so clear in this passage, isn't it? Where he says to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. There's a couple of there's a couple of ways that uh, that people try to get around this, and it's I think it's been in the background uh, for most of church history, uh, but I think it's sort of come to uh, have a little bit louder of a voice of late uh, of pastors and authors trying to do away with this idea of hell. Uh, one, a couple ways of dealing with it is one, some people believe that in the end everybody will be saved, that Jesus' love will conquer all and that hell will be an empty hell and that will, there will be nobody that ultimately rejects Jesus, even if uh, their acceptance comes after the grave, that ultimately everybody will accept and, and be overcome by the love of Christ and will spend an eternity with heaven. Um, that's a popular view right now. Another popular view is annihilationism, which believes that when the Bible talks about eternal punishment and eternal death, especially eternal death, what they would say is, hey, when somebody dies, they just cease to exist. So in the same way, um, eternal death is just an eternal ceasing to exist. And so hence the word annihilationism, where they just think that's it, that's the end. When somebody is sentenced to hell, um, that's it. 
I would love to adopt one of those views, but I just don't think that's what the Bible teaches, and here's why. Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 13 the parable of the weeds, and it's the parable where uh, the farmer goes out and he plants good seed, but while he is sleeping, uh, an enemy comes in and plants tares in his field and weeds in his field, and then they both grow up together, but at the end of the age, the wheat is gathered and the weeds are gathered and they are separated, and here's what Jesus says about that weed. That at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. And so the picture here is of a burning. That, that, that might go with an annihilation view, but then Jesus continues. When he explains the parable of the weed, he says that the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out his kingdom, everything that causes to sin and all who deal, do evil, and they will throw them into a fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This, this phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, is, is a phrase that is repeated as Jesus describes eternal punishment in hell, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Jesus tells another parable where fish are gathered and that not all of the fish were good. And so the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and will throw them into a fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus tells another parable of the rich man and Lazarus where Lazarus, uh, where, where the rich man is thrown into hell and it gives a very descriptive picture of this man lifting up his eyes, being in torment, painting a picture of conscious suffering in, in, in a physical place. In, in Revelation chapter 20, in Revelation chapter 20, it tells us, excuse me, That, excuse me, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been. And so Jesus tells us that there's this lake of burning sulfur designed for the devil. And that's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25. Remember that those on his left go into the eternal punishment designed for the devil and his angels. And, and so it's the same place. And just as the place for Satan is eternal and burning sulfur, it's the same place that those without Jesus go to. And so I just want to go back to where I was in the beginning. One, we need to be careful where we're going. We need to be very careful where we're going. Because it's so easy for us just to walk along thinking, I got this, I got this, no problem. <laughs> Before it's too late and you get leveled. We, we, we cannot be cocky when it comes to this matter of eternal destiny. Where the Bible paints a clear picture of forever somewhere. In verse 46, the way that Jesus ends this discourse Jesus ends the discourse by giving the eternal destiny of both places. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. When eternity's at stake, we can't turn off that flashlight. We cannot go along blindly. We need to stop. We need to take stock of, of our lives as they actually are and ask ourselves the question, am I showing fruits 
that would indicate I'm a follower of Jesus? Am I, am I caring for my brothers? Am I caring for, for those who are in the household of God? Am I caring for the least of these? Is my life showing signs that I have genuinely begun to follow Jesus? Does that demand perfection? Absolutely not. Does it demand actual real change, change of heart? The swapping of a heart of stone for a heart of flesh? Yes. And because eternity is at stake, it is, it is, it is not possible for for us to simply say, I prayed that prayer. I, you know, I, I, I made that decision once back in VBS. You know, I've, I've done that. I have that marked down in my Bible. No, no, no. We must, we must earnestly search our hearts. Am I showing signs that I am living for God? And then the second part is this. Is we, have to, we, we have to allow ourselves to be affected by the doctrine of hell. That we can go on in, in our world, we may be able to go on indefinitely without dealing with this doctrine. But just because we do not deal with it does not change the truth of it. That there is an eternity to be spent either in heaven or in hell. And that is true for your soul, for my soul, for, for your family for your friends, for, for, for those that you work with. And that the Christian message says that Jesus saves. That, that though we were slated for eternal punishment, Jesus saves us. The power of the cross is that death and the grave are defeated. There's no more sting in the grave. There's no more sting in, in death anymore because Jesus has conquered sin. But there's a real, there's a real tension that needs to be maintained there. We need to realize that the power of the cross is powerful because hell is real. And we need to, we need to make all the difference for the kingdom of God that we can. We need to be praying for our families. We need to be praying for our coworkers. We need to be praying for our kids, for our family. And so the, the passage is, is a little bit heavier. But my encouragement for you guys tonight is just twofold. Be careful where you're going. Take time to take earnest stock of where you are. And that's, I appreciate that we take the Lord's table every, every time we meet together at 613. Part of Paul's commandment when he, when he gave, when he, when he was talking to the church in Corinth about the Lord's table was to, was to reflect on where you are. And so before you take the Lord's table tonight, reflect on where you are. Are you bearing fruits of repentance? And then are you dealing honestly with the doctrine of hell? Those two things. Thank you for your time tonight. Uh, let's pray. Let's pray together. Dear God, I pray that you just give us the space tonight to, uh, to not be distracted. To not be so rushed that we're going to get on to the next distraction, Lord, and we're not going to 
we're not going to deal with the topics that, that you talked about in this parable. Lord, I pray that you would help each and every person in here to, Lord, take an earnest look at their life to see whether or not there are fruits that show that they are following you. And then I pray that none of us in here, Lord, would take for granted the doctrine of hell. Before I head off stage tonight, I just want to, I just want to talk to the crowd a little bit. You guys can go ahead and look up. Um, if there's someone in here who you say, Charles, uh, as far as the right and left conversation goes, I think I might be on the left. If that's you tonight, we, we want to make very clear that the first step in a life that is going to take you from the left to the right is believing in Jesus. Believing that Jesus died and that he rose again. And in that death and resurrection, there is power for you to have a totally transformed life. But that first step is belief. Telling Jesus, Jesus, I believe in you and I'll live for you. As we play these songs, you can, you can pray that prayer in your heart where you say, Jesus, I'm going to start following you. Jesus, I believe in you. Jesus, I am going to change my life as I follow you. And if you do that tonight, uh, man, tell somebody. Tell the person that brought you here. If you don't have a friend that brought you here, come up, tell me. Come up and tell Danny. Come up and tell the high schoolers on the stage. Tell somebody. But watch out where you're going. And, and let's just deal honestly with the doctrine of hell. Thanks so much.